terms of what does football mean for me, it's been a lifelong passion. Coming back to the Mariners um, and going to work every day with the sprinklers are on the training ground, the sun's shining on the central coast, it resonates with me. It's, it's something that I realised being back in the game at this level, it's an experience that you can't replace. It's something I treasure every day. This episode of The Spike, we welcome Tony Wormsley. Tony has had a successful career in sport as well as business, working with teams such as Man United, Sheffield United, and was even the manager of Central Coast Mariners. I wanted to speak to Tony as he's a contact that I've known for a couple of years from my past experience as a football agent. He's a very well-respected individual within football, in the academy scene, and also recruitment. The big talking point right now is academy football, about what happens if someone does not get a pro contract at the scholar age. This is something we speak about with Tony. In this episode, we speak about high performance culture, what it's like working in one of these environments, and the transition from football to business. As always, if you do enjoy this episode, please hit subscribe slash follow, leave us a review, or you can reach out to us via the Spike Pod across all socials. Tony, so as a bit of background for listeners, can you just explain a bit about what you do? Yeah, I'm the founder of the Leaders Advisory. Two years ago, I quit work. Basically, after the majority of a working life in professional football, transitioned into some senior business roles. And a culmination of that was, you know, one of those moments of self-reflection where you think, okay, middle-aged, what am I going to do with all of this knowledge that I've accumulated? What is it that, that drives me and gets me up in the morning? And of course, sport played a huge part of that. But what really gets me going now is what the lessons learned from that and in application are really of benefit to business. And where does business benefit sport as well? You know, having had a foot in both camps, it was about taking away what the anecdotes around the sports person in business are and where the benefits are and turning it into some real value. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say that, you know, I launched probably 12 months ago just as COVID was kicking off or a little bit before that. So to be where I'm at with that backdrop, I'm pretty excited about where I am and, and where it's going. Yeah, and I think the first time we spoke, I think you just finished out in Oz with Central Coast Mariners. Can you just talk us a bit about what it was like being sort of manager there and how that was? Yeah, I mean, it was a tough season, you know, and, and it was... That was the culmination. I'd, I'd worked at the Mariners previously and had a great deal of success. I was head of the National Youth League. I was assistant manager to the first team. I had six or seven years there of, of great success. And wh- when I went back to Australia, I was working in a, it was my first major transition into business. And I was doing some consulting back to the football club around strategic recruitment. They sacked the manager about six weeks before the end of, of the season. And I was in situ, it was an easy thing for me to, well, A, the business were fantastic and said, yes, you can do it. But the club said, can I take over for that in a caretaker role? It was amazing. I was in work in a, this technical supply chain transport industry environment on a Friday. I was on live TV managing the first team in the A-League on a Saturday. I suppose it captures the sort of uniqueness of the opportunity and how it came about. And it was one of those situations where... You only get that opportunity once. It came around. I was excited to do it. And I thought it was going to be a seven-week stint. And then I would revert back to the way things were. And that was the plan. Things had gone well. We were on a recruitment drive. Uh, Peter Story, ex-West Ham chairman, Portsmouth chairman, who was our sort of fly-in, fly-out chairman, just one day said, look, 
before we go any further with this recruitment process? Is it something that you consider? So I took it on and it was incredible for all that it was, you know, an incredible opportunity to be. It was almost like the culmination of a lifetime of evolution in the game. And at the same time, it was like the perfect storm of any managerial challenge that you would or could face was in front of me. It was tough, really tough. But for that reason, possibly the sharpest learning opportunity that you could wish for. A bit of a hot topic on the podcast so far. It's been about social media and sort of dealing with the negative side of it. I guess you had a completely different view on it because you had the press. So the social media is one thing and then the press is something else. But how did you deal with the pressure from the media? Because I'd imagine sort of towards the end of your spell, you might have got a bit tough. Media are asking a lot of questions. How did you manage the pressure? It was tough from the start. In the betting, I was first manager most likely to be fired. And I remember, I think one of the first your interviews was you know how do you feel about that basically and another thing thrown into the mix that year we'd we'd had these new playing strips designed and they went sort of global as being possibly the worst football shirt ever to have been invented so we had these like big palm trees on the front of the shirt you can google them that sort of quite had an affinity to them but in the moment i said well i've got a palm tree on the front of my shirt having a target on my back's not a great challenge and, you know, this is really about, about the spike, and I know we'll talk about it later, but it's about self-differentiation. So in, any question that the media is putting, it's just an external demand that has actually no influence over the work that needs to be done. Same with a fan's opinion of you or of your team or of the players. It's a stakeholder that's got a stake in the game that, that has value. The value that you share with those different stakeholders is going to be different in every scenario. The effect that it has on me or had on me is marginal because the focus is on answering the question honestly. We set our stall out to be courageous and bold and entertaining and regardless of the circumstances, being responsible for that, good and bad, opportunity taken or opportunity lost or failed, then being responsible for that is on the one hand, showed a lot of courage, which I can hand on heart say, yeah, people would say that to me. And at the time, I would sort of brush it aside. But when I reflect back, I think yeah, it was pretty bold and courageous. It's also a bit crazy. If something's a little bit so far out there that nobody understands it, then rightfully, you're going to get flack for that. And I think taking responsibility to understand it, if you've got quite a high risk profile and your vision is to go somewhere and you expect others or you want others to come with you, then there's another piece of work that needs to be done in order to get them to that level or to that point that you're at. And that was, on reflection, the, the most difficult thing to come to terms with was, okay, it, was, it may have been a great idea, but I might have been the only one that thought it was a great idea. The A-League as it was, a good league, a strong league, a professional league, live TV, loads of young players we had that were exposing themselves to the demands of this level for the first time. There has to come with that a great deal of sensitivity around what each individual might be challenged by in that scenario. Because the game doesn't change. The game on the Saturday says, in these moments, you need to be decisive. You need to make the right choices. You need to execute under pressure. And there's consequences when you don't. It's okay for me to want that to be to work out really well for everybody. You know, I care greatly that 
my players achieved and believed in themselves as much as I believed in them. But of course, the reality is if I, as one of those young players, got any doubts of my even my belonging in that environment, I haven't yet proven myself. I'm, I'm aspirational. I want to do it, but I'm actually afraid. I'm, I don't know if I can, but I'm going to agree that what the plan is, I'm going to agree with it because I, I want to do it and I don't want to be seen to be not agreeing or or not or vulnerable, then, of course, everybody sets off with the intention and it doesn't get met, the expectation isn't met. The media, being the media, have a right to do that. Now, there's a difference between getting asked about performance and, say, the result of it. You know, people get emotional when results don't go well. The media want a story. But we played a game at the Sydney Football Stadium you know, big team, massive budget compared to us. So the expectations were that we wouldn't go there and win. But we were two down after about 20 minutes. The, they broke through. The keeper got red carded on 20 minutes. So I put an 18-year-old keeper on on debut, 3-0 down. They scored the penalty. And it was, you know, I looked at this big screen. I thought, wow, you know, my big noggin on this, this giant screen at Sydney Football Stadium. And I suppose, again, we're in the spike. This, this is this ability to have clarity in, under an extreme set of circumstances. You're under scrutiny. I mean, these screens were huge. My head's up there. Family's in the crowd. We're 3-0 down after 20 minutes, and I've got an 18-year-old keeper on. My, my assistant manager as well, by the way, is in hospital with pulmonary edema. So I'm looking at my bench, and there's a sort of scarcity of people to lean on. And I, I suppose the presence of mind to recognise that this was... And, and perhaps with a, a smile on my face somewhat, that this perhaps doesn't get a great deal worse than that, except at the end of that game, and it ended up 4-1, I think, so we, we sort of did okay. They probably took the foot off the gas. It could have been carnage. At the end of the game, I was asked by Mark Bosnich whether or not I should step down. It was time to retire. Now, this is going straight after the game. Emotions are highly charged. And the first question from the studio I'm going live to air. I'm on the pitch still. I've got the headphones on. Is So, Tony, don't you think it's time you stood down? Well, the first thing is not to react badly to that or not to react in an emotional state. You don't always have control of that. What the challenge is not to do is try and interpret what the meaning behind the question was. It's just to answer the question. And, you know, fortunately... And I suppose to give you an example, that's an example of self-differentiation, of being able to, in a moment of utter chaos, stress and pressure, are you able to present a clear and decisive response to a situation? Results aside, responsibility for, for all of that, you take that away and go, okay, that's pretty cool. You know, that doesn't happen to many people very often. And you did okay. And I didn't see it. I was at the wrong end of that conversation. But the feed, external feedback, and even in the studio, the feedback was, wow, he, he, he handled that well. After you left, Central Coast Mariners signed Usain Bolt. Same about crazy and bold. That's quite a big, bold, crazy decision. When you saw it, what, what were your thoughts? I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised because knowing the owner... The owner was, uh, lives, lives in England, very successful businessman, loves football. He bought into the club as part of a, of a property deal, probably had the wool pulled over his eyes a little bit in a commercial deal that went on, and he ended up having to take over the whole club when it was at a point of crisis. So he, he kept the club afloat, and I was always grateful to him for that. 
but he was completely left field with his thinking on, on many things. And without tongue in cheek, he, he asked, would it be possible to sign a female goalkeeper for the first team? It would be the only club in the world to do it. You know, he wanted these palm trees on the front of the shirt. He thought it'd be a, you know, he, he had ideas that, were, and the reason for the palm tree, we a beautiful three-sided stadium. And at one end overlooking the water was just a row of palm trees behind one of the goals, a beautiful setting. There was always method in his madness. He didn't care whether we won or lost. He just wanted crazy stuff to happen. He wanted us to have free kicks that would go viral on social media. He'd be watching a game from his home in England, waiting for where is this going to be a world-famous free kick going to come from? So, of course, we'd have a free kick that we practised. We're talking about players who are just on the edge of trying to perform at the A-League, spending any less time doing the basics that we needed to be doing on crazy free kicks was really not my you know first priority at that point in time. And he used to be really disappointed about that. So it didn't surprise me when Bolt came up. And, you know, I've got different views of it. I think, you know, my understanding is they offered him a contract. I only read the anecdotes and, and the, you know, the money that was thrown around at one. They were saying that he wanted over a million to sign and the club offered him some sort of, you know, basic salary. So they were miles apart on, on the deal. But I think had they, you know, they were getting 10, 15,000 people to the trial matches pre-season with him playing, which was unheard of. As Orwitz, another great ball into the box. Here is Usain Bolt. Just beyond the post. He's had some good opportunities tonight. Knowing where the club was at, because when I left, you know, up until this year, they're at the top of the league now, but it's been five years or so where they've been bottom of the league. In that context, where you're not spending in a salary cap league where there's supposed to be you know, this evening out of the teams, we still weren't able to compete with with the bigger clubs. And things like that could have certainly brought global attention to the club and to the game. And I'm sure they would have got some much needed corporate returns, but the football purists were dead set against it. Yeah, I did think that. I thought it was an absolute genius idea when it comes to marketing yeah. and PR, but actually football ability. I remember seeing him always, is it Soccer Aid? And he's always offside. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. How is the fastest yeah. man, well, ever, always offside? Yeah. It's something that absolutely baffles me. But I mentioned sort of global there, marketing. Obviously, you were at Man United for a bit. When we talk about that as an actual marketing machine brand. That's one of the biggest brands in the world. What was it like working there? That was really interesting. Again, most of my career was spent overseas. And I was working in Queensland in Australia at, at, at the time where this came about. There was this old newspaper called the Australian and British Soccer Weekly. It was a weekly rag, like a proper newspaper feel to it. And it was all about football, the national and international football newspaper in Australia. And I used to get it every week. And there was like a full page advert for a job, Man United seeking technical director for Australian Academy. And I thought that's got my, you know, I'm a Man United fan, grew up in Manchester that's got my name on it. And I got interviewed for the job and didn't didn't get it. I was shortlisted, came second according to the feedback. So crack on, I was a bit disappointed, but thought that the guy that they gave it to maybe wouldn't last so long, which turned out to be the case. I was in Queensland and just about to go out to training. I got a phone call from the manager of that program and said, look, guys, this guy's leaving. How quickly can you get to Sydney and, and take over? So I took over as the technical director and then academy director for what was the official youth development partnership for Manchester United. They invested quite a bit of money in that. 
they're all playing Premier League football and good players in, within Premier League football. So United wanted a piece of that action and, and they had a set out a charter to, to get a return on investment through player trading over five years. And I managed that program for two years. You know, that was regular trips to Carrington. You know, it was spending lots of one-on-one time with the likes of Rennie Mullenstein and Mark Dempsey. And, and for me, there was always the potential, or I went through spells where I was a bit disheartened with the game or or what the opportunities in the game were over there. And then suddenly I was launched into this amazing world which re-engaged, you know, re-lit the fires because you, you're suddenly working with outstanding developers of global talent and getting to to benchmark yourselves and the players that you take over and expose there to just what the gap is and, and what it was that you're trying to do. You know, I got some fantastic insights and experiences there. If you look around your background, it just kind of screams high performance, in my opinion. There's Olympic programs, Sheffield United, obviously we just mentioned Man United, Central Coast Mariners. Is there something you've realised that all these high-performing environments have in common? Yeah, I mean, it's deep study for me at the moment. I suppose you spend a lifetime in it, and then as you become more mature and wise, you start to apply the lessons in a, in a more with more wisdom. You, you actually start to appreciate, okay, that's what was going on there. And, and you have to study the psychology behind it in order to really extract the most out of that. So, I mean, there's tons of lessons from it. I'm working in business at the moment. There's lots of similarities about managers, teams, and needing a result at the end of the week. It might be getting boxes out of the door. It might be developing a new tech product. It might be building a car, whatever it is. There's, there's quality. Uh, they want reliability and repeatability. They want their best people on the job. So there, there's lots of similarities, but there's some significant differences as well. But what is common, and as I get deeper into it, is that having a high level of self-awareness is critical if you are in a position to influence other people. Because what happens is most teams underperform, most managers underperform, and and I can take the stats from any industry. You know, global statistics say that most people that quit work cite the manager as the reason why. You only need to look back at football and see how many managers fail, but may not have failed if they'd been given longer. But, But the statistics say that they churn managers really, really quickly. And it's a cycle of this negative feedback loop that keeps perpetuating and people continue to go on cycles of, of, of failure. And, and often, I, I think, if you're a manager walking into a situation where you're responsible for influencing other people, in sport, it should be really straightforward. Everybody's there because they, they're good at playing football, let's say, or basketball, whatever it is. The goal is really easy to tie people to. We want to win the league. We want to win the cup. We want to win the game on Saturday. And then you have to manage or understand motivation in order to get, you know, as well as the technical side of it, have you got the right people in the right places? I don't play your goalkeeper up front would be a great message to anyone. Put your goalie in goal is a great place to start. Because if you don't, there's going to be the big weakness in the chain somewhere, you know. So most coaches understand that. But I think most don't really understand motivation. So they go into a situation and, and, and a new environment and they'll and it's the equate this to anybody that's been in sales all their life and suddenly get promoted to being the sales manager. So first day on the job, they take everything that they know or think they know about 
what they used to do, what they did last time, with a, a whole load of assumptions and, and track record of being good somewhere else or at something else. They plow straight into this new job with great intention, but usually in a way that will appeal to maybe a fifth of the crowd at best. That means everybody else from day one is to a degree a little bit disengaged or very disengaged on day one. So if you equate that to a football manager, which I now do often, walking into a new gig mid-season, say, you inherit in the squad that's there and you approach it in your way with your tone of voice, bringing everything that you took from the last place or the last five places that you were at, where you might have had varying degrees of success. And half of the people want you there, half of them don't, even before you've opened your mouth. And there's lots of noise around. It's so complex. It's almost an impossible thing to expect someone to walk into that situation and immediately be able to influence all these people in a positive way to get the outcome that everybody wants. So it starts with self-awareness. And the deeper you understand yourself and the complexity that you bring because me working for this club and me working for another club is not the same thing because every situation is different. You make one change to personnel and the dynamics can shift. It, it looks like a small change on the surface, but the dynamics can shift massively to the point where unless you're on top of it and you've got the data and the insights that you need, you don't know what's going wrong and you can't stop the leak or you can't fix it. And it's not just tactical. It's not just technical. It, it's about the environment and what gets the best out of people. The common thread is, is self-awareness as a precursor to being able to influence effectively. We've seen it before with some of our clients where they might just change the administrator, but they didn't realise the impact that admin actually had on everyone around for morale reasons. They might have been the life and soul of the office. And that one little change has actually caused mass problems throughout the business. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it all the time. You know, I've just done a piece of work with, with a business. One of the managers was on stress leave and we'd been trying to understand what the problem was. He'd been put in by the organization to manage a new team, just this kind of scenario that we're talking about. I was working with his superior, I'm doing the coaching there, and we were helping her try and understand what this relationship that she had with him was, how to make that as optimal and as functional as possible. And we were trying to pick apart what it was that, he was expected to do and, and where he was failing. This was over a period of weeks and some point down that line, he was struggling so badly, he went on stress leave, came back to work and said, look, I can't do the job. And he'd taken it with good intention. He moved from the job that he was comfortable at, the business were happy with him, moved into a new role, first managerial role and couldn't cut it. I used some tools that I had developed that tell me lots about an individual in the context of what it is that they're supposed to be doing and who it is that they're working with. And once I got his job description and overlaid him against it, the chances of him actually ever succeeding in that role were next to none. The impact of that is that the company can absorb the turnover in staff. They need to go through a new recruitment cycle. So it comes at a cost and there'll have been some productivity loss you know, whilst he was struggling and the team was struggling and, and you know, all of that. But, you know, it's a big organisation. They can cope with it and they now know how not to make the same mistake again. 
But where the problem lies is the impact on the individual. And this is so important, I think. And it's the bit that, you know, in the pursuit of profit or in the pursuit of success or in the pursuit of results, people who are mismanaged in that way along that journey are getting chewed up and spat out. And that's why the, the whole productivity and wellness alignment is essential to engagement and performance. You can't have one without the other and not expect to have negative results as a consequence. From what you're just saying there as well, and obviously you've been sort of business, football, business, football, and now you're transitioning more just to the business side. It does actually seem like the two industries are very relatable and very transferable when as an outsider looking in, you might think it's so completely different, two different worlds. But listening to what you're saying now, it does actually seem there's quite a lot of relevance and similarities. Yeah, because people, you know, motivation, what lights you fire and what drives you is common to everybody. And when I say common to everybody, everyone's got drivers and different things that get them going. So if you know how to tap into that, then you've got an advantage over everybody else that doesn't. And I think to a degree, we touched on it earlier, the ability to align people in sport to the common goal and the, and the purpose is a little bit easier. And one of the reasons for that is that the players in sport, if you equate, let, let's equate say, a manufacturing company to a football team and the manufacturing company, the, the head coach is the manager of the team that build the car, people that do the job, they're the players and they've got the manager. And, and the coach, the person that shows them how to do it. And we do it this way, we do it quicker, we do it better, and we get the best car out the door. The two jobs are the same. One of the big differences in football, the people that are doing the work, i.e. the players who are in a, an organisational business context, they're at the bottom end of, of the hierarchy. They're doing the work that actually counts, that's the bit that makes the money. And yet, when you flip that to sport, even though the pyramid's the same, it's the people doing the job that get held to the most account, but they also get the great rewards. They get paid phenomenally well. As against business, they get paid less than the people who are above them within the organization. You've got these two slightly different dynamics. And then you've got in sport, two hours on a Saturday, you're under absolute scrutiny and pressure. There's consequences to making mistakes and there's 50,000 people are going to ridicule you when, when it goes wrong right there in the moment. And not many people experience that, that heat or that pressure. But when they back off from that, they get to recover, they get to prepare, they get data, they get to analyze it, everything possible. They get well looked after uh, collectively and individually in order to be better next time. You turn that round to a business. They go in at seven in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon and people are burning out because they're not getting respite. The manager's on them all the time. We've got to, we have to do this. We must do that. And, you know, in the absence of this awareness, this connectivity that I've been talking about, people just work harder because they don't take the time to actually go, how could we work better? How could we align our strengths and bring our unique differences into play that actually work for each other. We just get our heads down and work harder. We have to do this. We must do that. We, we, we have to do the other. So you get this scenario where as additional to that in football, every time you make a good pass, somebody gives you immediate, you get immediate feedback, whether it's from the crowd or from the gaffer or, or from your, the guy next to you on the pitch. 
are brilliant, well done. Or, you know, if if you're, you know, switching off, somebody's up giving you a rocket saying, come on, hey, you can do better. So you get this constant positive insight that, that keeps your performance at the level it needs to be. And what I'm finding in business is that people often don't hear from other people until it's going wrong. So not only are, are they under this constant sort of match day scrutiny and demand for results, they get bullet when it goes wrong. They don't get opportunities every day to be recognized and valued and appreciated for all the good things, for the good pass that they make or the, or the strength and quality that they bring to the team. I suppose the term is soft skills. When, when people talk about soft skills, this is where it counts because you want your staff, your players, the, your, your operations team to know, they need to know that you've got the backs. They need to know that you care about them as individuals that they're respected, that they're understood. And it's the manager's responsibility to get in there and get that information shared and get what's important to know out of those people. You want to know who the next guest is on the spike? Do you see Gary Vee getting on that NFT hype train and things like that? The money's made before the news is announced. Hit subscribe or follow and you'll find out first. The whole point of the show, as you might be aware by now, is that we want to help our listeners identify what their spike is. And when I say that, what I mean is the thing that they possess that's unique to them that makes them stand out. What do you think your spike is? I thought a bit about this and for a long period of time, and that's what attracted me to your show was that there was actually the name and, and the focus. For me, it's what I call self-differentiation. And in the modern workplace or in sport, it's the ability to, I would call it calm leadership, in chaos, when there's lots going on, lots of external pressure, lots of demand, lots of scrutiny, can you be differentiated enough from all of that to make sound choices, to be decisive, to be wise, to be non-reactive, respond appropriately? So people ask me what I do for organizations because I'm not wedded to that. If I go into a big organization that's volatile or uncertain, as they have been for the last 12 months, you know, with COVID, lots of industry not, not knowing what's going to happen next, People turning up for work, not knowing if they've got a job in a month's time. You know, there's lots of people under, have been under even more pressure or under states of constant transformation. Digital transformation is changing the way organizations work. So people who don't like change naturally have got constant change thrust upon them because that's the way business is going. It's the people that can thrive in those environments are going to be the ones that are most in demand. So to be able to go into an organization, a fresh set of eyes and help people who are might be really resilient. You want to take the pressure out of the situation in a way that you're not doing it for them. You're giving them the tools and the, and the ability just to shed all the pressure that goes with it. You know, if you can turn that dynamic into a, an opportunity is, I suppose, what I do. So I take the pressure out of a situation and turn demand into opportunity, I think, for managers, for teams. And when you go into these environments, is there certain behaviours that you really look for, common behaviours, I guess you could say, in high performance as a whole, that you think really stand out? Well, the beauty of that is everybody's different. You know, people have got, I think it's a myth to think that certain types of people make the best leaders. Lots of people of a certain type become leaders, and often it's the ones that want to be leaders that, that get there. They're not always the best leaders because it's, each situation demands something unique. So the environment and the relationships will ultimately 
the alignment within all that is what's going to make any certain given environment succeed against its objectives. First, I would try and dispel myths about what makes a team player and what makes a, a great manager, because if you profile a hundred great managers and a thousand team players, they would all show up in different ways across a personality spectrum or, or as obvious as gender or race in terms of differences. Think about personality in many different ways than that. So the ability to say, okay, what is the, the best possible combination of all of these attributes and unique individuals that we've got to do this task? What's the best way of putting that together to achieve this task in a way that people are playing to their strengths most of the time? And what people don't realize is we, we can all adapt. I've got a very low tolerance for detail. No attention to detail is poor. I can do it when I put my mind to it. But I know that my energy, if I was a battery, it drains my energy like you wouldn't believe. If I spend too long doing things that are outside of my natural state, then I lose energy. So if we understand that as a, as a premise when we're putting teams together, then it just makes sense to say, okay, this person loves doing that and this person doesn't. We could make a small tweak to how two people do a certain thing, how one leverages the other, and suddenly you've got a – it's not just – two people who might not normally work well together working better together, they're actually got more energy for the stuff they're doing because they like doing it more often. And the manager looks like a genius. So everybody gets an upturn in mood and, and positive emotion because we're going back to those feedback loops. In football, you say, oh, great pass, mate, great tackle. Now you're getting more opportunities to say, fantastic. We haven't got that many done in the last five years. You're doing brilliant. You know, It gives you more opportunity to, to feedback. So you've got them doing things that they like doing. You're praising them more often for the things that they like doing because they're doing it well. They've got more energy. They look forward to coming to work now because they know they're doing things that they like. You're preparing them for the periods of time where they have to go out of their comfort zone a little bit, which if they know you appreciate that that's difficult for them, they will do it and you'll give them time to recover, whatever. And that's like football, you know, if you've got a striker, you know, is a bit late, you know, he doesn't really like to do the pressing off the ball, but there's a demand in the way that you're going to approach a certain game that for these periods of time, that that's what needs to be done. You've got to find a way to extract that, but not at the cost of disengagement. It can't create more conflict than there needs to be. It has to be a win for the person that's being asked to do it. You've always had quite a successful career in sport and in business and I think we spoke about it the other week, about players that are wanting to do both. And prime examples, in my opinion, Rashford, Lingard, they're both Manchester United. Well, Lingard's technically still Man United till probably the summer. They're both people that have got other things happening outside football. And I think the media always give them absolute sort of stick about that. Have you got any advice? Because I've got a few friends, for example, that are still academy level or under 23s that are debating doing something to do with business as well. Have you got any advice for them that are wanting to make that transition? I'm a coach first and an advisor second. What I wouldn't like to do is advise, you know, everything needs to be in context. So when media reports on somebody's propensity to do more than focus on football. I find it distasteful because it's they they're not walking in the shoes of those people. They don't have other than an opinion anything to back up that thinking. You know, they're using the language that, you know, ultimately might sell them more newspapers or get more more hits on social media. I think what is critical is self-awareness. Some players know that 
they're good at football and they can be a professional footballer and yet there's something missing. They just know it. They don't know what that is. Other people don't know it, but might feel like they're not sure. Some people will be doing football and are being told all the stats. It, again, I go back to everybody's different, but I think it should be explored. You know, if you've got people who are at the pinnacle of the game in the Premier League, Rashford, both England players, Rashford and, and Lingard, who are proving beyond doubt that you can actually run a business or do a social enterprise, they only train two hours a day. They've got plenty of time on their hands. Historically, that time would have been spent in the betting shop playing snooker and, and now, you know, a bit more PlayStation and all the rest of it, you know, pick up on the academy prospects. The stats are compelling for me. We know the majority of those players are not going to make it as professionals. It's almost mandatory that they are supported to uncover who they are beyond being good at football. When they know what drives them, when they know what, what environments best suit them, they can actually align themselves to a career that's going to fulfill them because football might not be, the, apart from being good at it, might not be the be-all and end-all for many of them. If you wind that forward to, let's say, a player that's played around League Two for most of his career, or, or somebody in the you know women's football who's become a pro in recent years, the game's developing as quickly as it is, and you know it's a long way from parity. But there you've got players who are growing in profile, whose financial rewards for playing are nowhere near what being in the Premiership are, same as a League Two player or a conference player or, or, or whatever. So you've got these players who've got careers that are, they're not going to sustain them beyond retirement and they need something else. Apart from the identity issue, we've all seen the horror stories and whether you're in the military or the police force or, or, or in sport, if you've been totally wedded to that for 20 years and then it's over and you were never given anything else, you never fed anything else, you never understood anything else, you can leave with without an identity and everything that you are is taken away in one hit. You know, where this stuff, this work that I do becomes, I think, really important is helping people just recognize more about who they are, what's their purpose beyond what they do. You know, it's about being better, not just doing stuff better. You know, everybody says, well, work on your left foot or, or, or strike, you know, 100 balls a day in order to, you know, that, that's great. but that's just getting better at doing doing stuff. I'm interested in helping people being better where they actually know who they are. They can be authentic about that. They can become you know, more. I think it should, first of all, be encouraged to have a life away from football. And I think one of the really good role models, well, I support Reading, unfortunately, but one of the really good role models at the moment at Reading is Michael Morrison. So he's got a couple of barbershops that he's set up whilst playing football. Obviously, he doesn't yeah. actually cut the hair in there, but he's got that life away from football that if he had an injury tomorrow, he's still okay. And talking about the academy point there as well, for people not making it, we first spoke back when I was a football intermediary, football agent, as most people know it as, and the amount of 16 to 18 year olds that we'd speak to about what their ambitions are within football, for realistically 95% of them to even get a pro contract at the end of a scholar. And a lot of these people have just invested their whole life so far from going into an academy when they were eight to being released at 18 and having absolutely no idea what should be done. And I do think there should be more work done in the academies. Obviously, background, you're head of recruitment at Sheffield United. So I personally think there should be a lot more work done in the academies, giving work with the scholars and 
well, under 16s and lower to, okay, well, what happens if you don't make it? Because we've all seen the stats, like 0.01%, was it, or something? Yeah. Academy players yeah. make it. I, I think there needs to be a lot more work done with it, really. There was that really sad case, wasn't there, with the Man City youngster when he got released, he committed suicide. I know Man City now are saying they're going to do more stuff with it. But what do you think? Do you think more work is to be done and can be done, or is it just never going to happen? I'm an optimist and my glass is half full all the time. I'm very positive about what's possible. I also know the reality that when I was at Sheffield United, it was the inaugural year of EPPP and I was part of that whole completely pulling a club apart and putting it back together to to meet all of these new regulatory guidelines, which was, was a tough pill to swallow for lots of people because it was a big change and it was different. But in essence, it was a good thing to do. However, I'm also aware that there's lots of lip service paid to ticking the boxes, filling the forms, collecting the funds, and then redistributing the funds into areas that weren't necessarily where the funding should go. You know, people getting double jobs to fill two headcount, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I don't want to mar this conversation with any negativity, but sport's one thing. What about schools? There's a huge opportunity to add things to curriculum and daily lives that help people really understand who they are from a position of strength and what they can do. That's not about following a certain model of education that either says you can or can't do something particularly well. It's actually saying, here's a load of stuff that you're doing, maths, English, geography, French, whatever, football, business studies, any, anything that you're doing is one thing, but there's also you. And it's the you bit that I think is where the most work could be done. Who are you? What is it that you're great at? When kids are really young, they can be astronauts, they can be footballers, you know, they've got those wild, crazy ideas. And then get them into sort of mid-teens when they're going through puberty or post-puberty and they can be confused about who they are and their identity. Then we could be helping people to really understand themselves at the time when they're the most vulnerable. And, and you take that into a football academy and at the Premier League where they can afford to do it and maybe tears down from that, they, it's really not about can you afford to do it. It's about can you afford not to do it. And it's maybe about reprioritizing where money gets spent or where time gets spent. Does training two hours less in order to give them two hours of something else make a huge difference? Well, if it saves a life or it, it helps multiple people recognize what other opportunities are out there. And I guess that has to be, has to be something. I guess that's the point, isn't it? With League Two clubs, can some of them actually afford to do that? I know some clubs when I was working as an agent that would get to under 18s and release the whole lot of them. So they just do not have the finances to continue them. And it was just simple as that, which is obviously sad, but I think that's just, just sport now, really. What is the best bit of advice someone has ever given you? That's a great question. My immediate response is I honestly don't know because there's loads. There's loads of good advice. I remember one of the coach educators once used the term language to act on. Where there's no room for interpretation, you can act on the information that's in front of you. I think it's got incredible value. For me as a coach, that was a light bulb moment. It was 1993. I was actually at the Australian Institute of Sport on an advanced coaching course. And the instructor, Ron Smith, he had this phrase, language to act on. He showed an ability to, in one phrase give the player absolute clarity of what their options were in any given situation. That's what it means. I took that on board back then, but in the work that I'm doing now, 
where I bring insights to the surface about a team or a, or a manager and I'm having conversations with them. It's about not being wishy-washy and not, not thinking what, what could be or what's possible. Actually, that if you do this, this will be better for everybody. If you stop doing that, then this will have a massive improvement. If this person moves from this role to that role, you need to get somebody that can do these things. Those little insights can be the difference between success and failure. They sit with you forever. There's a transfer of knowledge and that's what you're looking for. You know, if I'm working with a client and they can forevermore apply something that they've, in the context of what they're doing, learned as being valuable and repeatable, then I don't think you can ask much more than that. I hope that that gave you great insights and what a culture's like in a high performance environment, managing a football team and dealing with the pressure of the media and as well as the importance of identity. You might be able to predict where I'm next going with this, but if you did enjoy this episode, hit subscribe slash follow, leave us a review or reach out to us at the Spike Pod across all social media channels and let us know what your spike is.